yeah, I don't know what we're talking about at all. Neither, we don't, we don't either. either. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just happens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. We all come from different backgrounds. Yes, all of us. And I'm talking about you too. And we all find a passion in bourbon. And one of the most intriguing stories that I've been introduced to is from our guest today, Caroline Paulus. Her first love and her area of study is archaeology. And she had no idea that coming to Kentucky from Wisconsin on a dig would actually lead her into a new career in bourbon. She's fascinated with the history of whiskey, and that has made her become one of the leading authorities when it comes to analyzing dusty bourbons. And as a whiskey historian at Justin's House of Bourbon and the senior editor for the Bourbon Review, she tells her story about falling in love with this line of work and some of the stories about running one of the best stores dedicated to bourbon here in Kentucky. Well, with that, enjoy this week's episode. Now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Chris Tauber, I hope I said that right, who is a Patreon member and writes me on fredminnick.com. After Kenny's request on Bourbon Pursuit Patreon community, I had a few questions. I plucked one here that I really like, Chris. Tell us about the distilling industry's role in World War II and the prohibition of making beverage during the war. Well, thank you for that great question, Chris. That's a big, uh, it's basically an entire chapter in my book, uh, Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey. And prior to my research on this, the gospel from the distillers was that everybody volunteered. Everyone was so excited to make industrial alcohol from the war movement, and they were just wanting to help our great country. Well, part of that was true, but the fact is they were forced to um, stop making alcohol. In October 1942, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, every distiller got a cease and desist from, uh, or some kind of formal letter from the United States government saying that they were no longer permitted to make alcohol. Distillers in Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, and Missouri all got letters prior, so they were kind of cut off beforehand but Kentucky was able, you know, Kentucky lobbyists and have always had incredible access to Congress and the Senate to benefit distillers. It's it's been the case for a long time. And so they had the longest runtime of of making whiskey in, during World War II. But the government said if you want to still make money, we need industrial alcohol. And so you can outfit your stills to make industrial alcohol. And uh, that will be used for Jeeps, gunpowder, parachutes, etc. You know, whatever, whatever you need industrial alcohol for, you know, it was used uh, in the manufacturing of uh, war materials. So they get all, all together and some distillers decide that they cannot afford to take the hit. So you had uh, companies like uh, the Blair Distilling Company in uh, Marion County. They just folded, and that was an incredible legacy of uh, of distilling history. Just gone. Uh, you had um, large, you know, mid tier companies, you know, sell to bigger ones because they couldn't they couldn't afford it. 
they saw the, they thought there was another full-on prohibition and no one really knew what was going to happen during World War II. So there's a lot of uncertainty. So that became where the rise of Brown Foreman, National Distiller, Shinley, Seagram's, and a few other companies, they were going around acquiring and uh, they were just making, you know, they were making industrial alcohol, but they were also growing their portfolios. Now at this time, these companies would also have interest in suitcase companies, pharmaceutical companies. So they had their, you know, the whiskey was just a part of a portfolio. And the whiskey presidents were using this as an opportunity to buy up the little guys. So that was really what the World War II movement did with industrial alcohol was it was the end of independent distillers. There would be a few here and there, but for the most part, independent distillers got gobbled up or went out of business during World War II. And coming out of World War II, all those distillers who did that were brought into the Senate to testify before before hearings about price fixing, about gobbling up these smaller brands, about using mafioso tactics to sell alcohol. And that is why we have so many laws today that basically try to protect consumers from collaborative agreements with distillers on prices. But if you want to learn more about that, check out my book, Bourbon. The history is all in there. But the great question, Chris. Thank you for reaching out. If you would like to be like Chris, hit me up on fredminnick.com. If I like your idea for Above the Char, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000273. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. The whole crew here today to be able to talk to a good friend of ours. We've known her for a very long time, but we've known her through the whiskey side of things forever. And she's always been 
very generous with her knowledge when it comes to bourbon history and bourbon dusties and everything like that. And I know we're going to be able to talk about that a, a good bunch today. So Ryan, how have you uh, been introduced to our guest before? You know, if I want some dusty pours, I just, I, I, when, Car- <laughs> I, when Caroline's at the shop, I'm like, let's go, let's drop everything we're doing. Cause she's going to walk us through, show us, let's taste through everything. Uh, she's Caroline's great. We've had a great relationship, working relationship, you know, throughout the years and uh, excited that everybody else gets to learn more about her and see what she's all, you know, what she does in this for this great community we have. Yeah, I know. I think this is going to be a battle of, of minds between Fred and Caroline over here oh, to no. see who's got, I feel who's like got, I'm just going to get some popcorn. No, and, uh, no battle maybe whatsoever. A, maybe I, a couple I bottles. Ex- I get excited to talk about whiskey history, uh, no matter what. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the misnomers about, uh, I think on the, like the whiskey historian side is like, we all get along and we all like to talk about the fake history that brands have been putting out and the real history. Cause there's a whole lot of fake history. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I love about Caroline that she gives a real. So that's what this could be a good show. I know. And you've probably read a lot of her articles online. If you've ever stopped into Lexington's just a house of bourbon, she's probably there as well. So let's go ahead and introduce her on the show today. So today on the show, we have Caroline Paulus. So Caroline is the whiskey historian at Justin's house of bourbon, and she is also the senior editor for the bourbon review. So Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. See ya. So we kind of talked about before we started recording here. So let's, let's go, let's rewind back the the hands of time here a little bit uh, before whiskey was really a thing for you. So kind of talk about your past and growing up. Was, was whiskey ever a, a thing in your household or was it something that you found a love for sort of later on in life? Definitely something that came much later. I think of all the German and Irish Catholics in Wisconsin, I had the only two teetotaler parents. So <laughs> it was not anything I ever considered that I would, I would have anything to do with as a career uh, until I moved to Kentucky. And so where in Wisconsin? I'm from Burlington, Wisconsin, technically Boners Lake, but uh, no one knows where that is and it's hard to explain. So (laughs) Actually, somewhere somewhere in Wisconsin. I do know that area. I I lived in Milwaukee for for a while and that area, I I know a lot of people that would go, would vacation there. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so Wisconsin is such a great state and the amount of alcohol they consume in that state is off the charts. I think per capita, it's it's amazing how much they drink. So it's because it's so cold. Like they're like, yeah. I just think it's I think it's the heritage. Like you have like every drinking heritage, every every culture that ended up in Wisconsin all came from drinking cultures. Irish, Catholic, uh, even the Nor- Norwegian, like all. <laughs> All drinkers. Yes. Okay. Can we take a minute to say this is probably where any Wisconsin listeners are going to hate me? They make the most terrible old fashioned. Am I right it's, or wrong? It's here? different. It's just yeah. different. It's not terrible. They make it with brandy. Um, or something? They make it with brandy. They, and they do brandy. the whole muddled thing. Wisconsin actually drinks ninety percent of America's brandy, so I have to drop like a Corbell ad here, I guess, or something. <laughs> um, but they they do make their old fashions differently. There's fruit squished up in the bottom of your glass, uh, usually with a packet of just white sugar. Big red flag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually called an orange cherry flag. So. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, then they add they add the ice and, and the brandy, um, and then you can get it sweet or sour. So when I ordered an old fashioned here and was handed basically two ounces of whiskey in a cup, where they looked at it with a bitters bottle and you know a sugar cube, now it was very, very different than what I was used to. And now it's better, but but then I was scared. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think culturally though, I mean that is that's Wisconsin. Wisconsin is an original state. They're unique, and they're always going to do 
their own thing. I mean, you went to University of, of Wisconsin. Go to a, a a Badgers game and tell me that you don't have a better experience watching a band play than at University of Wisconsin. I mean, they just like the, a marching band or band yeah. band. <laughs> yeah, the, the Mike Lacrone uh, was the director of our band for over fifty years. We've been named the number one college football game day school by somebody that I don't think knew as much about it. U.S. News and World Report, maybe, but we uh, we have a great football game day. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Have, like, it's like a running back factory too. And then <laughs> like every running back comes and, out and there, offensive like, lineman. But yeah. the best thing about my favorite thing about Wisconsin was Halloween. Like you go there. Oh, okay, I want to hear where this is going. Lawless. This is just going to be an episode <laughs> of Wisconsin. <laughs> Brought to you by Wisconsin. Come visit us. We'll call them. I remember I lived uh, I lived there for five years uh, minus, and the unit that I went to Iraq with was a Wisconsin unit, and so like everybody I was there with was was Wisconsinite and some Illinois people, fibs as you all would call them, or fish tabs. <laughs> We're so out of the loop. Uh, so, <laughs> so you can take fib, yeah, yeah. It's, um, so, uh, fib is uh, fucking Illinois bastards. Okay, uh, and, what, is what yeah. Wisconsinites. And a, a fish tab uh, living as close as I did to Lake Geneva is a fucking Illinois shithead towing a boat. <laughs> so that's funny you said we have we w- when I was at Lake Cumberland growing up, my parents and like Muggles would all call them fifis, fucking idiots from Indiana. <laughs> Because they would come down, they'd block the boat ramp, they would like park their truck and unhaul their shit while the, there's like 20 trucks in a row. But uh, yeah, that's funny that now I'm in on it. <laughs> <laughs> but Halloween, mm-hmm. like you, you'd go there and people just, they dress to the nines. I mean, they really do get into it. And Wisconsin is a, is a very welcoming, you know, drinking party state. So I, I feel like this is where all cliques are like abandoned. Like you could be like a math geek and end up going to the biggest fraternity party, I Wisconsin. You'd be welcome, and that was that was the one thing I loved about Wisconsin, is that it was so welcoming. You know, in certain circles, most most of the time they were like, "Get get the hell away from me." But in like game day, Halloween, you know, it's like everybody was very festive, and I loved it. If you don't have a beer, a beer will be provided for you. Yeah. yeah. Or old fashioned with a bunch of sugar, or a brat, you know, with a bunch of grilled onions on it. Just what, and the beer you... and the beer selection in Wisconsin, unbelievable. Line of Kugels, Spotted Cow, you know, Nuglaris. Mm. There's their fruited new stuff is really good too. And what was my favorite one? I did have some Nuglaris before. It is pretty good. I'm not a big fan of sour beers that they. I think they're really known those, for. Yeah. But oof, I don't. They've know. They've gotten known for them, but Spotted Cow was the original. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. There's a brand I, I can't think of. It's named after a town there. Uh, it's been so long, but I used to love this beer, and I, I haven't seen it since. Uh, Saint something. A lot of French ones up north. Yeah. She's a whiskey story, not yeah. a beer story. <laughs> I can't think of it right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google it. All right. <laughs> I've had enough Wisconsin. All right, I'm done okay. with Wisconsin. <laughs> I'll do one more. Actually, I've got all well, my family is actually from Kenosha. Oh, never mind. So, oh, that's where my mom works. And so yeah, it's worked. always Sorry. got to hear about, and it's not called Coke. It's soda mm-hmm. or pop. Soda, soda. And, yeah. and soda. you don't go to the red light; it's the stop and go light. Like no so way, it's stop and go light. Yeah, oh. so never yeah. heard she's, that. She's smiling over there because she knows it's true. <laughs> um, what do you drink out of? Like, if there's a, a place next to the bathroom for you to get some water? It's, I guess it's not a fountain. What is it? It's a bubbler in Wisconsin. Oh, okay, <laughs> right, a bubbler. Really? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Huh. And and you have to bring your own birthday cake to the birthday party. 
in Wisconsin. I did not know that. I didn't. A birthday cake was provided <laughs> at, at for the, me, but I was very small there, so I think they didn't make me do there that. There you go. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay, so let's let's move moving on. Move, okay, so you go to you go to University of Wisconsin. Yes. Do you, what's your what's your area of study there? Because we talked about yeah. before that you've really been to archaeology. So. Yeah. Um. So I had a degree in anthropology, biological anthropology, and uh, was focusing on human evolution. Tried, applied, and, and was accepted to a dig in Swartkrans as a study abroad one summer, and my health didn't end up allowing me to go, so I took a smaller dig that was local. And while I was there, you know, it was a park called Aztlan in Wisconsin, and it was May, sleeping in a tent below 40 at nights. Oh, gosh. It was very, very cold, miserable work, and I was just in love with it. I was just obsessed. I couldn't wait to wake up, and my fingers were so cold and arthritic, I couldn't even, like, you, get them around the shovel. Digging just for artifacts? Yeah, yeah, digging um, for really, uh, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful native site there. They have earthen mounds. Uh, we found, you know, huge array of arrowheads, even copper Indian jewelry and animal bone. Eventually, I think they ended up determining it was a feasting site, but... Um, what do you mean, feasting? Feast, like a party. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, it was, you know, something I still um, kind of laugh at because it's very similar to what we do today, you know, sharing and drinking and celebrating, but, um, hopefully our bones just aren't sitting there still. They will one day. (laughs) (laughs) All our empty carbon bottles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One day an archeologist will try and glue that together for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, ceramics, stuff like that. We, we found all kinds of things, but coming out of that, I, I thought, wow, you know, I always thought I wanted to work, you know, with human genetics, with human evolution and ended up thinking maybe for just a few years, I will, just have a bachelor's degree and do some archaeology because it's a study of anthrop- or a, a subsect of anthropology that you can really actually get a job, not a well-paying one, but a job uh, to do with only a bachelor's. Generally, you need a master's or a doctorate to work in anthropology. But so I decided I would do a few years of it, and I got a job down in Kentucky, and I moved here, having to you know sell the the pieces of furniture from my college house that I wasn't going to use to get the gas to move down. I mean, can't tell you. How broke I was to come make thirteen dollars an hour to dig holes on the side of the road in a yellow vest, and I was just thrilled about it. What, Couldn't have been happier. What were, what were you originally looking for? What was the? Uh, I, I did what was called cultural resource management with a firm based out of Lexington. So we would get a contract from a, a state or federal government where they were going to put in a road or a bridge or a, you know railroad, anything like that, and we would go ahead of that construction and make sure that anything that had cultural value, you know, would be saved or or if we needed to avert the path, we would. Like an Indian burial ground. Exactly. Or, or even, you know, a, a, a relevant and important historical farm site. I thought that just the people that didn't want the road to come through there would hire you all to be like, to yeah. delay, delay, <laughs> delay, <laughs> delay. The, they're looking for something. It's like in Yellowstone. They're like, we'll just create an environmental study. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I remember actually, they, the people didn't always want us there. On my very first day ever digging, I had my hair kind of put up in a hat. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm tall. I'm six feet tall. So I don't didn't look particularly feminine that day. And I was, I was digging on Eastern Kentucky and popped my head up and saw about 10 feet away from me, somebody was coming at me with a pipe. And when he saw I was a girl, he put it down by his side. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think everybody always wants, wants us out there. Um, but once I explained what we were doing, it, he was okay with it. Okay. Well, Eastern Kentucky, you could have been at a moonshiner drop, oh, yeah. a meth drop. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. A lot of directions I could have went. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> could have gotten sour real quick. Yeah, yeah. It was before, wild out there. Before we kind of dive into more of that, I, I want to ask you a question. Since you're the only archaeologist we've ever had on here, what did Jurassic Park get right and what did it get wrong? That is actually paleontology. So when you have a paleontologist oh, on, so you can ask them. Indiana, yeah. Indiana Jones would be your. Oh, okay. This is this you're is just, wrong just yeah, my yeah. This is shameful secret time. I've never seen Indiana Jones. I, oh, wow. I, oh really? I can't sit still for very many movies. I don't. I don't. I don't see very many at all. But now that I now that it's been so long and I haven't seen it, I, I need like fanfare for it. You know, I need a whole movie night. 
projector yeah. snacks themes. Because well, I remember talking to you one time, and I think we were at Justin's, and you were kind of talking about this this woolly mammoth or this like saber skull oh, yeah, that had been that. been discovered, and you were like going all antsy about it. So I was I was kind of figuring like that's where it all pulled from. So that it's it's interesting with Paleolithic megafauna. When you hear Paleolithic, lithic means stone. So that means it actually was was fauna that was present, uh, animals that were present in the United States when people had made it here. Dinosaurs, no overlap with people. Whatever the Creation Museum may tell you. Um, yeah. <laughs> none so this is where your, your evolution uh, <laughs> knowledge really yes. comes in here. They so have a people... dinosaur on the ark. At <laughs> people weren't Did riding around. they have around. two? Because maybe that's where the dinosaurs went. Oh my gosh. <laughs> two of each. <laughs> so people were not riding around on saber-toothed tigers, what you're trying to tell me. Well, saber tooths were, you know, oh, there we go. alive at the same time as people, but they, you know, they didn't interact very often. But when you think of mammoths and mastodons, you know, large scale fauna like that, dire wolves, actually a real, a real thing that was yeah. you know, a North American mammal present here when people were. And you'll find evidence that they coexisted, at least not coexisted. How but, old? How, how long ago? 10,000 years. 10,000. Yeah. Yeah. Kentucky's actually a big bone lick, um, a very, very famous megafauna site. Um, if yeah. you look at Thomas Jefferson's kind of reign as, as a top politician in the United States in the early days, what he did to help solidify the U.S. as a country that had cultural relevance was send a lot of the megafauna uh, skeletons, mammoths in particular, to museums all over Europe. And a lot of them were from Big Bone Lick in particular. So archaeology has been an incredible resource for almost all of my work, uh, but especially my book on mead. There was uh, so much I, I pulled from like uh, uh, digs in Russia and like Denmark or what would be like Viking territories and stuff. And so, so like archaeology is kind of like that first piece of like history. Like historians will go in and like interpret and kind of build around some of the archaeological stuff. But that the stuff that archaeologists find, especially in, in our world, in our world, it begins with with beer and mead, you know, some of those first things, and you can find it in, like, cuneiform tablets and so forth. I, I wish there was more done that was open in China because, you know, I think we could probably find the early distillations in China, uh, but that's not very public. But, like, uh, what I have been able to extract from archaeology digs in the, you know, my career has, has been a big part of what's in my mead and rum and uh, whiskey women books. How did you, uh, what was the leap from from archaeology to uh, to bourbon? Um, it was a bit accidental in the sense that I started going to a bourbon bar, Bell's Cocktail House in Lexington, oh, yeah? quite a bit. Maybe too much, some might say. <laughs> um, but while I was there, I, I met some guys, Justin Thompson, uh, Seth Thompson, Bob Edson, and, and Justin Sloan. And I was doing, you know, all kinds of little things to pay the bills while I fed my archaeology habit. But... I was writing a little bit for for uh, other friends that had you know websites or whatnot, um, and they said, "Hey, you know, you could write some bourbon articles for us. You you seem to know how to drink bourbon." Uh, <laughs> when, you, when you say when you say write, like what were you were you ghostwriting things or just no, like random I was things? Just chopping up press releases. That was it. Okay. You know, I, the first article I ever wrote and it was terrible. Now looking back at it, was about the Basil Hayden ten year release, Basil Hayden Rye release. It was a Basil Hayden Rye release in April of 2017, maybe? Caribbean. No, no, they had just a Basil Hayden, like, rye, like a green label rye. There it is. (laughs) See, now that's the 10-year. Oh. Yeah, there was, like, an old one. Maybe it was was called 2 by 2 rye or something? I don't know. I'll find it. Kenny's Um, not an archaeologist. After after I edit it and post it. I don't recall. I have never been a fan of Basil Hayden, so that one just gets deleted in my brain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or (laughs) to saving for other things. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they they just sent me press releases. 
I remember sitting down with JT and he kind of talked me through what it should look like and how to just basically make it factual. Nothing too fancy, nothing, you know, just chop out all their fluff and, right. and lay out the facts. Yeah. So I did that. And then I did a few more and I started drinking more with them. And they gave me things that I really, at that point in, in my bourbon career, shouldn't have had. You know, I, I definitely had an interest in food and beverage. I had made some couple terrible home brews and I had uh, worked as a sous chef at a farm to table restaurant. So I had some decent floor knowledge for it. But I remember maybe after I had been working for them, writing for them for a month, I mentioned to someone, yeah, we had a, a Pappy 16 last night. It was really good. And they kind of looked at me. There's like, there's not a Pappy 16. I was like, I, I drank one. It was a Van Winkle 16. I think it had red on it. So red. I mean, they, they just let me try everything. So, so it was, uh, it was really just baptism by fire and <laughs> drinking everything I could get my hands on. It's a good way to come up. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I'm very yeah. spoiled. What was the like landscape like for the Bourbon Review? Like, I mean, how big a reach did they have back then, or when you started? <sighs> I mean, they at that point, they were in all 50 states already. And um, this is five years ago, but they had at that point been doing it eight years. So they were in all 50 states. I think they had 31, maybe more countries. They already had 50,000 Instagram followers. I mean, it was their email list was over 100,000. So big for, for the time. Big for bourbon still. Big for bourbon. Yeah. Big for yeah. bourbon yeah. still. Yeah. And now it's, you know, twice all that. But yeah, for sure. Did you see it and be like, wow, there's, this is crazy. This is bigger. Is there, there's, there's a future here for me. Or... Not at all. I, I thought I would keep doing archaeology forever. And this was something that I could write on the side and it would be really nice. And then the boys opened a vintage whiskey shop. And I thought, maybe I won't ever have to live in a tent ever again. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It was, it's a good fit. Mm -hmm. It's a good fit. Yeah. Did you ever work with uh, with Nick on any of the bourbon archaeology? No, digs? I'm just such like a fangirl of his. He has no idea who I am, I'm sure. Actually, he just followed me on Instagram maybe like a week ago. But Who's Nick? Uh, Nick Laraquente, the we, bourbon archaeologist. We had him oh, on the podcast a long right. time ago. So he is, I'm not the only archaeologist that's ever been on this True. podcast. True. Now, now that I think about it. Yeah. Nicholas Laraquente came first and, and, and definitely best. But <laughs> he, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his work, but he, I've never met him and he He's has no idea who I am. great guy. We can make that happen. I yes. would love that. I, I've, I've, so many times I've been like, I should just email him and see if he just wants to, you know, get a drink, but I don't want to be weird, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Justin's. We'll open up Dusty's. Yeah. Yes, it'll be great. That's one way. I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of cool from from your background and now that you I think Nick had a little bit different experience going into it because Nick really wasn't into bourbon he kind of got contracted through Buffalo Trace and through other different things to actually go and explore this stuff and then that's kind of how he he found his sort of knack for bourbon but I just don't think he might even been at the layer that that you're at and so you're kind of coming from an opposite direction where you like you've known really about archaeology but then you really have this fascination for bourbon and you could really marry the two together I mean do you picture because i know that we talked to him before and he says yeah we're we're open to anybody that just wants to come and help us dig and start putting the shovel in the ground and start digging yeah, up some of these farm would, fields they would have to physically remove me at 10 p.m like i that would be great yeah <laughs> like <laughs> the tent out here would probably be a little warmer too <laughs> yes, yes definitely yeah that was a part of the reason i chose a contract in kentucky when i first started because like i said you can't it's so cold you can't open your fingers in the morning because they've been gripping a shovel all day you went pillar opposite you're like i want as hot as humid as possible yeah i went <laughs> so on I a dig sweat yeah. my ass off <laughs> i had to dig once in south carolina and it was too hot and i threw up so i, I had to stay right in the middle with kentucky <laughs> like, yeah. it's amazing most kids go to college to not dig ditches first of all. <laughs> it's very you know the world does need ditch diggers um I, but this I, is yeah <laughs> i did the same thing i meant turf management for school i'm like why did i go to school for that here we are yeah, yeah here we are now we're in the bourbon no wonder yeah 
find a new path. Mm-hmm. Always find a new path. Yeah. So I guess uh, the next logical question is, is so the boys bring you on, mm-hmm. right? And do you immediately come on as whiskey historian or do you come on as just help for the shop? Like what led you down the path of really wanting to go all in and learning about history and everything like that? Yeah, no, I, I originally came on just to work the cash register. Myself and Brian Booth were the first two employees. We stocked the shelves before we ever opened and we're still here, but Brian Booth running the Lexington store. Or sorry, Brian Booth running the Louisville store now and me in the the Lexington store, which is run by Ryan Albus. But I was just kind of there to be there two days a week because Booth could mostly handle it. We didn't really have much foot traffic when we first opened. And uh, it's just me and him for the first, I mean, few months, you know, and minimal people coming through. It eventually started to build up steam around April of 2018. We started to be busy enough to need more help. But yeah, it was it was a couple days a week. Just I would sit and write. And if somebody came in, I would try to talk to them and sell them a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Writing about what? Just for a, bourbon review. Yeah. Okay, just, so, you know, press releases and stuff, little yeah. things. Because you've also changed some of your, your writing style over the years too. Like you're just not chopping up press releases, but no, you're no. you're creating kind of more in-depth articles as well. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I've I've attempted to do that. <laughs> Hopefully it's it's being seen. But yeah, it was originally just doing press releases and little things like that. And now larger interviews, I wouldn't say investigative, but larger research-based articles. And just recently did my first article that I w- would consider in the first person, which was my experience losing my taste and smell during COVID. Yeah. So How I guess- are you now? <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. I, back. This is a terrible story. I'm so sorry I'm going to ruin your podcast with this. But this morning I was walking my dog and I, I scooped his business and I could smell it from three feet away, which was amazing. I've never been happier to smell that in my entire life. Um, that's that's the uh, human instinct kicking in. Yeah. I'm back. Yeah, I'm back. You can smell the stink. <laughs> yep, yep. It was uh, it was great. But it has been a even the last thing to kind of come is like stuff that's in the air. You know, like yeah. I can't still can't smell you know things that are a few feet away from me. Where I used to, there was a uh, one time I walked in to the office of the shop and there was a glass of Starlight Cigar Blend on the desk. Mm-hmm from me to this light. And I said, what is that? He said, what's what? And I said, what smells like that? He goes, oh, I got something for you to drink. And I was like, that's what it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I used to be able to smell something from across the room and now it's like still getting there. But other than that, food tastes normal, which is great. Didn't even lose long enough to lose any weight. So, <laughs> so who, who taught you to get your palate to where it is, kind of get you like comfortable with like tasting whiskey and learning and how to appreciate it, how to understand what's good, how to validate it. Who who was kind of your like mentor in that regard? Yeah, because um, she needs it because she does around, two, she has to write the notes for 200 bottles. I know, that's that's what she was saying. I was like, good God, we did 50 and I can't imagine doing 150 more. <laughs> yeah, it's it's between, you know, two stores and, and for clients as well. But yeah, um, definitely Justin Sloan and Justin Thompson. And reading other people's notes, listening to what everybody had to say. This is, again, an, another person I'm a huge fangirl of and, and I don't think she knows who I am, but Nancy Fraley. Um, yeah. sometimes oh, yeah. I think I know what I'm doing, you know, and I'll write a nice little paragraph of tasting notes for a nice barrel pick. And then I read her notes for the Joseph Magnus cigar blend. And I'm like, I'm a fraud, man. Like <laughs> I should quit. <laughs> Nancy's great. I've, oh my God. I've re-listened to our podcast to learn about blending. Just, she's just a master of everything, yeah, you know, whiskey. Yeah. I mean, just a fantastically talented human being. So you, you start taking on this role, you're in the store, but what point do you kind of flip that switch and become the historian. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, 
the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So you, you start taking on this role, you're in the store, but what point do you kind of flip that switch and become the historian? I believe that was 2019. This is funny. So I was still... <laughs> here so we go, still, story time. Yeah, this, Sit is, back. this is Justin Sloan's business acumen right here. I was still this is gonna kind be of good. writing part-time and I was, you know, going to yoga during the day and walking people's dogs or babysitting people's dogs and working at the shop a couple days a week. So still hadn't really fully committed to bourbon, you know, picking up digs where I could, you know, two, three weeks contract here. But I came into work one day and I must have looked frazzled or something. And Sloan said, what's wrong, honey? And I said, oh my gosh, you know, all my friends are having destination weddings this year. Like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for all this. Like I said, archaeology, you know, twelve fifty an hour. It's not great. <laughs> it's just enough to survive. It's, yeah, I was feeding myself. Um, and he said, okay, all right, all right. And the next day he took me to lunch and he was like, do you want to work full time with us? And I said, okay, like, let me think about it, you know, because I'd have to give up doing digs and, you know, other little things said, you can still write for Bourbon Review. And, um, but this is, you know, a full time offer. I thought about it and I said, okay, like I'll do it, but I want my title to be whiskey historian. Did you get a sign on your door? <laughs> I didn't. No, there's, I, we share an office, but I have business cards. So you guys can nice. have one if you want. <laughs> and so what, so you got the title, but what actually took you to wanting to learn more about the history? Because, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you talk about, yeah, you're, you're doing your archaeology thing on the side, you're reading press releases, but I've talked to you before and you're a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, I'll, I'll find a, a few bottles or say, hey, somebody tries to sell me something. Can you tell me about these? Because I don't really know much about some of these old labels. They could be old National Distillers or Heaven Hill things because Heaven Hill's got 42,000 different labels. So it, like, how did you really start getting into the, the knowledge space? Before I had the title of the job, I was already doing the job. You know, if a bottle came in, it was like, okay, Caroline, go figure out what you can about this because they knew I had research background and they knew that I had an interest in history. The work came very naturally. It came before the title um, and it would, you know, just be me back in the, the speakeasier at the bar for two hours until I would come up and say, okay, this is what it is. <laughs> but 
It's like when Pawn Stars, you show up and they're like, let me talk to my expert. (laughs) So you're the expert. I hate that. I don't ever, I don't think I'm an expert at all, but but, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I just want to know everything I can about it. I would never claim to already know everything I I do, you know, or everything that there is to know. Um, But I just want to learn more every day. Walk us through your process a little bit, uh, because I know that I've shown you pictures before and I'm like, I don't know what these are. I don't know what the value is. So how do you kind of come to a learning about the whiskey kind of knowing what's in it where it came from where it originated and then getting into sort of valuation sort of stuff the easiest way to do it is to be surrounded by a vintage bourbon bar like I am, <laughs> and drink it every day um, and compare and contrast i mean it's tiny little things you know sometimes you'll see a cap on one bottle and you're like oh but i saw that on this bottle and then you compare them and they're identical and you're like okay so this must have been bottling here and there's a million tiny little threads you can tie together whether it's verbiage on the label we had a bottle of old cork that I'd never seen in my life before from 1920. And it said, fragrant as a rose on it, which is the, the Mammoth Cave slogan. So it's like, okay, you put that together. It's easiest to do if you're already surrounded by a bunch of vintage whiskey, which which I luckily am every day. I mean, you know, start with Google, go from there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I get hit up all the time from auction houses and, and places to like validate bottles. And I have a bunch of bunch of tools that I have from like, the old days of like, you know, prior to, I would say prior to 1950, they, they published a lot of details, like the trade would publish details and they would have actual blue books. And it was, it's very easy to validate bottles from, from that period. And there was also a lot of like bootleggers who would try to like fake stuff from back in that time. Do you ever get any like products that might have you know that were bootlegged or any kind of like you you spot any like counterfeit kind of stuff period fakes are almost more fun because you know um you you're seeing you know i've I've never to my knowledge we've not had anybody bring one to us but it is a little bit more intimidating to walk through the door with something where you have to be there in person and say you know right do you want this because the boy's response if there's any question whatsoever is well let's open it and you know if you if you want to do that, you know, we can do that right now, sell it out in the bar. If you don't, then we're going to walk away from this. But I've I've yet to find one that was, I guess, good enough to be considered a period fake. It's it's more common to see them that they're faked modernly, you know? Yeah. Do you remember the, uh, the house in New York? They lived in an old bootlegger's house and they found all of these like old bottles. Remember that one? I remember it was How during it was during the pandemic because yeah. yeah the people were taking off like the siding on and the they house had the, like, the, it was like the big um, and they were in boxes they looked like pints yeah. but they were bigger they were that's right yeah, yeah. and I rem- I rem- I researched it and that was the most counterfeit bottle of prohibition from Canada coming in and I was like if that guy was a bootlegger you know I, I can't remember the name of the brand it was. But it was like, I was like, it, it's most likely a fake. And I put that out there and I got so much hate mail from people. Because <laughs> it, yeah. it, it went viral. It yeah. went viral. And you were the only, you're the only one opposing it out of the entire world. I know. World. I'm like the only naysayer. <laughs> I think a healthy dose of skepticism is always going to be, you know, Absolutely. necessary in, in this industry, especially when you're dealing with wanting clients to have the real deal. So, yeah, I'm sorry that that happened, but... That's but no, no, normal it's, for me. Yeah. It's the <laughs> normal day of the week. Is there, so. is there any awkward instances where they're like... No, this is real. And then you're like, I'm sorry, it's not. And they're just like, I, you know, I've had they people push that, back or, that say it was a gift or that their dad passes to them. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to pass on it for today. I don't, you know, right. I'm not going to fight anybody. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want it. Uh, so you have, you have to negotiate on the bottle then mm-hmm. when they come in. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so for those listening, it's legal in the Commonwealth of Kentucky after a vintage bill was passed 
that uh, a retailer, a licensed retailer can acquire a bottle from an individual that is the bottle can no longer be in distribution. And so that's what you all do there as you all are acquiring uh, bottles there. And so you're actually negotiating with, with, with people. And, and that's one of the things when, you know, Justin's comes up a lot and some of these bourbon forms and everything, everyone talks about like the price. I'm like, they're not buying from distributors. They're buying from individuals. Uh, and those are not, that's not a regular Blanton's or Rock Hill Farms. That's five, six years old or thereabouts, something like that. Question for you. What, what's the most popular item in Justin's House of Bourbon that you sell that's not in the vintage or in the highly allocated kind of? It's Blanton's. No, it's Chicken Cock. Is it Maker's Mark? Chicken or Cock Cooper's is up Craft. there. Chicken Cock is up there. Cooper's Craft is up there. Those are hand sales. It's just some that we like to recommend that you know yeah. people don't usually see. Um, our number one seller, we are the number one account for it and have been for three years, is JW Dan. No way. If wow. you come into my shop from outside of Kentucky, I, that... I will tell you all about JW Dan. I will tell you about... Tell us Tell us. Some, <laughs> share some bits and nuggets for our, our, our uh, fans it's, out here. It's one of the longest running brands in bourbon. Um, they, yeah. they haven't changed the label much, if at all. It's 15 bucks and it's bottled and bond Heaven Hill product. If you are sitting out there somewhere hurt and sad that you can no longer get Heaven Hill white label, six year bottled and bond, JW Dant will soothe your soul. Is that Kentucky only? Uh, it, it's very, yes. It's yeah. according to Bernie Lovers, very, very hard to find outside Kentucky, a little bit of distribution in Indiana. But he refers to it as the gold dust. Obviously, you come to Kentucky, you want that bottle of Blanton's or whatever rare limited, you know, old Forester has just come out. And those are the gold, you know, the gold nuggets that you want to grab when you see them. But the gold dust is all over, you know, on the floor beneath your feet. And you like reach that. down to the bottom shelf. This is all Bernie Lovers. This is not me. <laughs> and you grab that bottle of JW Dan and you take that home with you because it's perfect for toddies. It's perfect for drinking meat. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's such a incredible, incredible iconic name. I mean, the Dan family really... They they rivaled Beam in the case of Stephen Beam uh, is a Beam and so why didn't they survive? Just they made decisions that were contrary to the family name. You know they just sold. You know they got out of the game. Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, because I read it from the lawsuit that was recently settled from Heaven Hill and everything like that, was that uh, it was a few generations later and the family just didn't want to take it over and so the aunt just sold it on the market or whatever and it was it went through a different few different hands that traded, but ended up in Heaven Hills. I should know this. My family farm's like 10 minutes from there. But <laughs> it's, that's, and that's the thing about, that's the thing about Berman is like we, we're, we hold a lot of these names up and we revere them. But to so many, like Berman was just like, they didn't give two shits about it from 65 to, you know, 95, you know? So it's just, it's kind of great to see that. But the I chuckled when you said that they haven't changed the label. That's because like, you know, Max Shapiro from Heaven Hills, like, we ain't spending one red cent on like changing these labels, you know? <laughs> it gets no it gets no publicity. It makes the same amount of money every year. They make yep. the same amount of bottles every year. No advertising, no updating. There's I think whatever plastic caps they have on hand go on top. I've seen white, <laughs> I've seen red. Like, See, I mean, think that was the controversy right with now, the whole like, lawsuit. They're like, You all haven't spent any money on this product, <laughs> but you're fighting to protect the, the name. It of makes it X America. amount of dollars every year for Heaven Hill and it drinks like a beast, so JTS Browns in that same league, you know. His brother, yeah. And then you have the Heaven Hill Green Label, six year, ninety proofer. Just so many, so many great ones like that. I, that that's great to know that that's the number one. What's number two? Chickencock and uh, Cooper's Craft are definitely hand cells that yeah. a lot of people on my team like. The other ones that I my my favorite, like you know, they're like, what's a bo good bottle for fifty bucks? New Riff Single Barrel. Um, I would drink New Riff Single Barrel all day. I have 
20 odd of them at the house and they're great they're so good and so when people come in looking for something kind of cool you know mm -hmm. uh, that they don't see as often and now new have definitely started to expand their distribution um, but that's my hand sell every time yeah Okay, so you're gonna help me. Hand, you're gonna hand some me a vintage bottle here. So we talked about the new stuff. So how much, I, wait, how much I, money do you have? I, I'm getting there. I'm All getting right. there, Fred. Hold on, baby bird. I'll feed you. So, <laughs> so I've got. I say I got a thousand dollars. I can spend it on anywhere between one to three bottles. Where do you guide me? You're gonna get one. What do you like to drink today? I'd say I'm a new whiskey drinker. I just like Maker's Mark. I just want something fun to be able to try. Okay, cool. Um, so you like that kind of ninety proof, a little bit softer. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's great because you know. When you're talking about dusty bottles, a lot of them in the ages where we call the glut era, kind of that 90 or 65 to 95 range, bourbon was proofed down quite a bit. You know, people didn't want whiskey too much. They wanted gin and vodka and, and drugs. So, <laughs> drugs. So, <laughs> LSD. So they took bourbon down, you know, from its usual 100 proof to, to the minimum proof, which is 80. So we'll find you something nice and light. Okay. So you like caramel flavors. Sure. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to let you guide me here. Kind of guide me through He likes, through actually, that. he likes well, Sweet Oak. Let me help yeah. him. Yeah, like Sweet Oak. Yeah, sweet Oak, like Sweet Oak. Sure. Well, he was giving me absolutely nothing, so I, I know. needed something. I know. He, likes, <laughs> he likes a little bit of tannic. He, yeah. like, yeah. he likes That's perfect. You guys tannic. know me better when than I my say, own yeah. sometimes. <laughs> when I say glut era, I mean bourbons that have been aged uh, quite a bit longer than the bourbons are aged today. So if you like tannic, if you like oak, you're really lucky if you're looking for dusty bourbon. A lot of oak and a low proof is, is pretty classic for a lot of the Heaven Hill brands that we were talking about. Um, you know, the 40,000 odd. Uh, dusty brands that went through their hands, uh, whether for for export or here. So let's go take a look at a couple of those. So give me, I, I give, know the one. <laughs> it's virgin, fifteen year virgin, virgin bourbon. Fifteen year virgin bourbon. That's oh, it's gonna be fifteen year Anderson Club. Oh Shoot. yeah, well, that's a good <laughs> one. Too. Damn, I'm sorry. I yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. So that's of, that's how it would go. Out of those those forty thousand labels that we always talk, because you've probably seen more than than I have or known about. Have they you pop up every day? I have a list. Like, Heaven, Heaven Hill cats and dogs on my computer, and I just add to it. Really? That's all I do. Have you well, give me some of the ones that are like the wild ones that you've you've come across. Oh man, I, I don't think I've looked at the list for a month and a half at this point, but um, the Virgin Bourbon's funny, obviously. Nothing's coming to mind. You've put me on the spot. I've, yeah, I I've frozen miserably. Like, Bur Bourbon Supreme, I'd never yeah, seen Bourbon before. Uh, oh, oh that, really? Yeah. We had talked about this one, the uh, ROB. Yes. They call it Very Old ROB, um, and it stands for Very Old Rare Old Bourbon, like huh. ATM machine. You're <laughs> 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 just repeating this, um, but I like the Very Old Robs. Yeah, uh, Kentucky Rifle, some of the funniest ones, and this isn't Heaven Hill one, but some of the funniest ones are just brands that didn't intend for the bourbon to ever stay in the United States. It was it was always going to be an export. And so it just kind of had to be a postcard from America almost. So when you're looking at the the uh, old KBD Monument Valley, the uh, Pre-Fire Heaven Hill um, old Kentucky Rifle, you know, like Monument Valley is nowhere near Kentucky. But if you're in Japan where this bourbon is headed... You know, to us, it's like, oh, this is the geishas and the sakura flowers. Like, they go, this is the same thing. You know? yeah. It's not at all, but, <laughs> but it just meant America. So those are the funniest ones to me where they're just, like, aggressively Americana. Makes yeah, sense. in Japan, thank God for Japan, because that was the only country drinking yeah. bourbon. Kept uh, helped bring it back. It did. It did. So I guess, um, you know, one of the other things I kind of want to talk about, just because you're such a, a wealth of knowledge when it does come from the the dusty side of things is, is how do you continue sort of like that education when you are going through this? Is it just through a lot of research and, and continuing to, to try to find, and, and you had mentioned a spreadsheet, like, do you continually make notes and, and re go back to I them? try to, you know, I definitely, I'm sure there's certain things that I haven't written down that I've forgotten. One time I uh, Googled a brand and I found an article that I had written four years ago on it. So I definitely, you know, I've, I've forgotten some things um, that I, I need to go back and update my, my sheets. 
But I'm lucky in that every day I've got a new reason to research. You know, every day a new bottle comes in, every day, you know, something pops up and I can go uh, look into it or hop to a, um, the Phil Center wherever and, and sit and read about it. But I would, I would also say that one of my favorite things to do, and this has just led me down so many wonderful rabbit holes, is to go on the old message boards from like 2000 on straightbourbon.com yeah. Oh, yeah. and just read whatever, wherever my mouse lands, just read hundreds of comments. Julian Van Winkle giving out his personal cell phone number, begging people to come <laughs> to his distillery, you know, um, Veach and Cowdery just chatting casually about whatever bourbon happened to be around. I mean, it's just an untapped wealth of information that I every day find something new in. Bourbon Enthusiast too. The bourbonenthusiast.net's a great one. Yeah, yeah though, that, that just it was a treasure trove. I, I I talk about it all the time, like how that was the original like social media. Like it started in like ninety eight, ninety nine. It's amazing. Well, it's but, unfortunate that Facebook does not provide you the same SEO and search engine capabilities that a lot of these do too. Because yeah, you can ask a question to Google. You're not going to go into the, the plethora of like what is in facebook knowledge realm either so you think they're going to share like <laughs> no. metadata you can do that in the group no. section you can search yeah but period. you actually have to go to the group and make it happen it's right. a lot easier just to go and then you have to go then you have to go through like 75 memes before you get <laughs> yeah. anything worth a shit they're all Makes about a, plans yeah <laughs> it's all about plans this brings up a good question do you think like archaeology for the future is like man that's weak you don't even have to dig a shovel you just gotta do a google search you know like oh no for like what we're doing now for people archaeologists in the future you know oh i gotcha i gotcha you know um no because they'll have to go find kenny's bones and bottles somewhere but But no uh, it's it's certainly far more helpful when someone keeps reference of what they've been doing and and writes Mm -hmm. it in a a space that can be saved but no uh, archaeology will always require an amount of manual labor yeah i think you know the future of archaeology is probably going to be like how are you going to read this technology like if you for example what blockchain do you get like um if you think about like uh like a beta disc or beta tape if you found something from like the late 70s early 80s like and you have this incredible piece of history that's on a beta like, good luck finding something to play that. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. You know, uh, in, Great point. in like five, six hundred years when, when dirt's crusted over us or water's like uh, taken over Kentucky, whatever it may be. Water world. Another point pandemic. Lexington's on a plateau. Y'all have fun over here. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this like, there's like this special preserved, like uh, Justin's house of bourbon with a special spreadsheet. And the person writing about bourbon at this point is going to be like, What's who's this Caroline person? What's this all about? They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to listen to this podcast. They're gonna have to figure out a way to unlock that data. So look at the notes she wrote on that new riff. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) New riff writes their own notes, and she lost her taste and smell. Yeah, that is Jay. Because Jay's so good at it. He's an English. Oh my god. I've been trying to get him to write a book on Northern Kentucky Cincinnati distillers for uh, ten years now. Wow. Every time I see him, like, where's the book? So where, if you're yeah. listening, Jay, which I know you do, write that friggin' book. No, he, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, love writing my tasting notes. It's just a nice excuse for me to sit quietly and drink for half an hour. And his are already done. So for my favorite craft distillery, it's like, oh, okay. Well. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of books, when can we expect one from you? I, I was about to say, it was kind I of thought my, Fred was going to say, I got another one coming. Yeah, I was about to say, like, when are you going to take a lot of this information that you've had and either, like, open source it or turn it into something like that? This is a two-part answer to this one. Number one, when, I'm, when I feel like I'm enough of an authority to write a book. I have never been on a podcast before because until today, I couldn't convince myself that my 
dumbass opinions, whereas Val is anybody else's. <laughs> hey, we, we go through imposter syndrome to this day. Yeah. Uh, so number one, when I feel like I can I can write a book. Um, but number two, I have actually recently been given by, like I said, Justin Sloan and Justin Thompson, who have given me literally everything so far, given a uh, set of documents that I think will prove super, super interesting. Not, nothing I can talk about now. I think you guys might have heard a little bit about it when you were uh, visiting with us, but We'll talk about it off air. We'll talk about it off air, not to, not to be Kip rude, but... <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And with that, check yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> the cliffhanger for y'all. Uh, no, but I've, I've been given a set of documents that I think, will, I think will end up being really special. Well, let me just say this. Uh, you, you've, you have proven yourself entirely, and I have seen people with far less merit write books. <laughs> believe me. And, 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 I've you seen know, podcasters listening. <laughs> I'm looking at one in the mirror. Uh, so I think, you know, what, whatever, if I can help push you over that edge, if I can help you in any way with, with the, the book writing path, they are a pain in the ass, but they're a big joy to do. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to support in whatever way I can. And purely the Justin Squared plus Seth, you know, giving giving you all the support they have over the past decade. That's all I need to know in terms of like your work ethic and everything. Well, I'm all warm and fuzzy. It's not even the pursuit rye, man. <laughs> <laughs> he does that. He's a big teddy bear from time yeah, to time. Jeez. Occasionally. <laughs> yeah. But Just Caroline... staring the hip, the ascot, it's hypnotizing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the polka dots, man. Can't look yeah. away. <laughs> but Caroline, I do want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to get to know more about you and your background. I think it's it's interesting the way that you kind of took it from your party days in Wisconsin to coming. I never said party days. Well, I'm, I'm going to assume <laughs> with the Halloween your, story. It's your, your party your, your Fred and Caroline, that's your first book, Fred and Caroline's Guide to Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> that's... Coming up soon. <laughs> Is that those special documents you're talking about? Yeah, there you go. It's the autobiography we all need to read there. Uh, but as I said, it, it's it really is a pleasure to kind of get to see your your history of how you kind of went there. It's funny because people talk about like ski bums bumming around. You actually were kind of like an archaeology bum. You're like bumming around and kind of doing we're, stuff we're like shovel bums. Shovel bums, yeah, is that shovel what it bums. Is? You work all over. Whoever's got a contract for you, yeah. Okay, see, nice. I learned something <laughs> new today too. But it is cool to kind of see how you took these two passions and kind of started like molding or melting them together. And now that you're taking over a lot of things in the historian side at Justin's House of Bourbon, as I mentioned before, I've always been impressed with the amount of knowledge that you have that you're able to share when I show you a picture and you're able to show, oh yeah, this was coming from this distillery or it's worth this much or anything like that. It's always, uh, like I said, a huge help, at least for me. And, and I know that a lot of the people can probably get it out there. So if people want to know more about you, where they can follow you online, how they can find you in the shop and buy a dusty bottle from you, how do they do that? Yeah. couple couple Instagrams. Um, my personal is Miss Whiskey Historian. The uh, shops are going to be House of Bourbon, KY, Lou, and Lex. Um, and then Bourbon Review, uh, all on Instagram. So you'll see writing and, and bottles and photos there. Um, you can come see me at House of Bourbon Lexington. Um, I'll pour you whatever new riff we got handy. <laughs> you got to pay for the dusties, though, sadly. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we um, would love to, to hear from anybody. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And if you have dusties, make sure you go bring them to her. She's going to tell you if they're valid or not. And they're going to say, open them. We'll, we'll let prove you know. It. Yeah, prove it. Let me drink. I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So make sure you follow her, follow Bourbon Review, everything like that. But also follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you also want to get caught up on the latest news, uh, never miss an episode, bourbonpursuit.com. Sign up for our newsletter. And also follow our good friend, Fred Minnick, over here as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>